You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 7 and 9 this morning. Before we turn our attention to verses 7 and 9 uh, in our sermon, I just want to acknowledge that this has been a chaotic week. Uh, in the life of America um, during a a very chaotic season uh, in the life of our country. And so in light of all that is going on, I want to begin this morning by making a political statement. Uh, It's a political statement that I think the church needs to hear now more than ever, and it's the official political position of Citizens Church, and here it is. Uh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the unchallenged, unimpeachable, immortal, glorious Lord of heaven and earth who was and is and is to come. He is on his throne. He holds all things together. He forgives sins. He loves sinners. He forever defeated death and hell. His campaign platform is a perfect life in an empty tomb because the grave could not hold him. He rules right now at the Father's right hand and he pleads over you and he pleads over me love and grace and mercy and strength. He is in complete sovereign control over all things. Jesus is Lord. And I don't know how you feel right now about the national election. I don't know if your guy won. I don't know if your guy lost. I don't know if you're happy or discouraged, or maybe you're just glad it's all over. But after a tumultuous week in the middle of a tumultuous season, maybe we remember that our allegiance is first and foremost to King Jesus. And I hope, I really do hope that you thought deeply and believe convictionally these past few months as it relates to your civic duty. I'm not foolish enough to believe that this election didn't matter, but I am foolish enough, at least in the eyes of the world, to believe the psalmist when he says that some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And this morning, when you walked in these doors, you were reminded that you are a citizen of the kingdom that is incorruptible and undefeatable. You belong to the king who elected you to be part of the church of Jesus, which will remain forever because Jesus himself promised that he will not let her fail and he will not let her fade. And remember with me, church, the greatest political moment in the history of the world is coming in the future when Jesus is declared by every mouth to be the rightful ruler of the world. It says in Philippians that being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above of every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Matthew 5 verses 7 and 9, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he ascends a hill uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he preached a sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it is arguably the best known of all time. And it begins with these nine Beatitudes. It begins with these nine blessing statements, which are uh, really describing this uh, counterintuitive, upside-down vision for what it means to live 
a good life and what it means to live a flourishing life. And we've made our way uh, through these uh, Beatitudes. It doesn't describe different kinds of people. Altogether, it describes an entire person and it describes the person that is part of God's kingdom. It describes the person that lives now in the kingdom that is both now and is to come. And so this morning, we will complete these sayings. We will cover the last two of the nine uh, Beatitudes. We have not taken them in order, but we will complete them today. And so there's a point that we can make now, and and how I want to begin is kind of looking back uh, at a high level, looking back over what we've heard, and, and just acknowledging something. If you consider what we've covered, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. What part of your life is required of you if you follow Jesus? Um, If if Jesus is describing the kingdom kind of person and and he's talking about what's going to change and what he demands, what part of you is changed by following Jesus? What part of you does Jesus demand? All of it. All of your life, every part of your life. He's announcing the kingdom is at hand, heaven is coming to earth, and you're invited to belong to that kingdom. And, 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 and he does not mince words that to belong to the kingdom is to surrender to the king completely. Like if we were to do it this way, if we were to just take what Jesus has said so far, these verses, and turn them into a dialogue with Jesus, and he says, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you, and you respond back, okay, well, Jesus, what does that mean? What is it that you're asking for? Uh, what do I have to give up? He would say, well, every shred of pride in you That would have you believe that in and of yourself you can be made right with God. I'm asking for that. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay, Jesus, what are you asking for? He'd say, I'm asking for your pain. I'm asking that you not uh, try to escape. I'm asking that you not try to numb. I'm asking that you not ignore, but that you would see that suffering is a road that God wants to meet you on and you carry your grief to God. That's what I'm asking for. Blessed are the meek. Jesus, what does that mean? What's that gonna cost me? And Jesus says, well, listen, being gentle is the new powerful in the kingdom of God. That following me is committing to a life of meekness where anger is slow and speech is soft and wisdom abounds. And the highest compliment you could receive from anyone is that you are gentle and lowly because only then are you like Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus' intrusion into our life goes all the way to our very desires and all the way to our very wants. And he goes after this desire that we have for happiness and satisfaction and exposes that, that that's a fool's pursuit and wants to reorient that around him. Blessed are the persecuted and the reviled. John showed us last week that in a world that prizes safety and security as highest good, following Jesus means welcoming rejection and welcoming persecution because we have found in Jesus someone that is worth suffering for, which means surrendering our future and our health and our comfort and even our reputation to him. He wants all of your life and all of my life. Think about it like this. Uh, When you have people over to your house you will allow people to enter into parts of your home depending on who they are, right? If it's a guest, then um, if it's a first-time guest, someone you don't know well, you, you expect that they come in and they just stay in the living room, maybe the dining room. If they're going to use the bathroom, which you probably hope they don't, but if they're going to use the bathroom, you want them to do the guest bath, obviously. If they're a friend, then they probably have more access than that. If they're a really close friend, like the kind of friend you don't even have to pick up before they come over, then they know their way around your home. They probably are allowed into different rooms, right? But there's still some places that you expect them to not go. They don't go into your bedroom, right? They don't rummage through your closets. There are rooms that people don't go in. Even for your closest friends, there are parts of your life that you just keep to yourself because they're considered yours. They're considered private. But there is a time when you give up all of those rights 
There is a time when you open up all of your home and you give unrestricted access to all those who come in. And it's when you're trying to sell your house. When you're offering your home to potential new owners, you invite people to go into every room and to open every door, even your closets. Carrie and I moved from McKinney to Plano a couple years ago, and there was one closet that was just filled with clutter and filled with junk, and we didn't have time to organize it or clean it out before we put the house on the market. And so she said, well, can't we just put a lock on the closet so people don't go in? And I said, no, you can't have a locked closet. They'll think we're psychopaths, right? Nobody will buy our house. Because you open up your whole home, right? You invite people to come and look wherever they want. And if they put an offer in, then they get to send someone even to go into the attic and inspect the whole thing and find out where all the problems are. Why? Because when there is the prospect that what is currently mine might belong to someone else, you give complete access to the potential new owner. One of the myths and misconceptions of Christianity that we especially fight here in the Bible Belt is that to be a Christian is to welcome Jesus as a friend, maybe even a guest into my home or into my life and to keep him out of parts of my life. And this sermon over and again, Jesus' sermon will just shatter that myth and confront that myth. Christianity is not Jesus becomes a friend who has access to some of or most of my life. Christianity is my life is under new ownership. Our life, if our life is a house, the only role Jesus will play is head of the home. There is no room where he's not allowed. The invitation to the kingdom is to surrender completely to the king. Abraham Kuyper has this wonderful quote. It goes like this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Our whole life is his. All of our life is his. Look, that is really good news. That is really good news. Because the very first thing that Jesus declares mine over in your life is your sin and your failure. That Jesus will enter into our life and he will claim our sin and our failure and our future. He buys the home just as it is, if you will. He does not require that we fix the place up. He takes over our life as we are and all of us. And he is eager to enter into every mess and every room and all of our brokenness and all of our past and all of our struggle. As dark as any of that might be, he enters that and he owns that with us and he offers love and he offers mercy. Would you hear this this morning? Even, goodness, even if this is the only thing you hear all morning. Jesus ruling over your life is good news because he is not repulsed by you. He is not apathetic toward you. If you belong to him, he is lovingly for you and you never have to hide from him. You never have to question his motives. He will be kinder to you than you are to yourself. He will be more honest with you than you are with yourself. And what flows from him always is understanding unconditional love, especially for the parts of your life that are most messy. There is not a room in your life A part of your past, a current struggle in your present that he is not eager to cover with his love and to fill with his cleansing mercy. That's who Jesus is. And this is how much of his sermon will function in our lives. Much of his sermon, if we go back to my illustration, is Jesus who purchases us by his blood and then he walks room by room in our life, room by room in our heart, and he says, I want to talk about this. Uh, He walks to the room where we keep all of our pride and he says, look, you and I both know that this has to go. Let's clean it out together. He walks to the room where we keep our pain, our, our, our wounds, the, 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 the suffering that, that besets many of us. And he says, you need to mourn this. You need to carry this grief to God. Don't be alone in this. 
He walks through the room that's filled with our mixed motivations and distorted desires and the way that we can be really duplicitous and divided and not whole. And he says, look, you were made to be single-minded and to hunger and thirst for things that are better than what you're hungering and thirsting for. You're made to desire God. Let's together reorient these desires around me. There's not a room in our life that he doesn't occupy. There's not a part of our life that he doesn't care about or lay claim over. And all of that brings us to these last two Beatitudes. This morning, we will look at two more, and Jesus will lay claim. He will declare mine over an incredibly important part of your life, my friend. He will lay claim over an incredibly important part of my life. Would you listen for it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus is Lord over your relationships. He's Lord over my relationships. Let me say it as clearly as I can. God cares about how you treat people. He cares how you treat people. God cares about the quality and the condition of your relationships. He cares about the contribution you're making right now in the world as it relates to hostility, as it relates to conflict, as it relates to chaos. He cares about all of that. And what he does is he specifies how he wants you and I to be in the world, especially around difficult relationships. If I were to take the Beatitudes and turn them into action statements, he says, offer mercy and create peace. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who offer mercy, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who look around at where there's hostility and conflict and say, I wanna enter in to try and create peace where I can. Relationships are hard and people are messy and there's conflict all around us and Jesus knows it. If you're like me, you've felt that more intensely in these last six months than maybe ever in your entire life. These past several months has been a season that's strained relationships. It's strained relationships in the home and, and at work and even at church. And this season has just been pregnant with strife. And hear me, friends, this morning, it's as if Jesus holds up to us the conflict around us. Maybe even he takes us into rooms in our life where we've stuffed our broken relationships and he wants to send us into those difficult places, not to feed chaos or to further break what is broken, but he has called and equipped you, Christian, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker, to deploy you into relationships that are filled with strife, to deploy you into places in the world filled with conflict, to offer mercy and to create peace. We'll talk a little bit about what that looks like. Before that, I just want to answer such an important question. Why does that matter to God? God, why do you care that your people offer mercy? Why do you care that your people create peace? Because that is precisely who God is. And that is precisely how God has treated us. God is a merciful God. God is a peacemaking God. He has made peace with you. He has made peace with me. Uh, he has replaced the hostility that stood between me and God with his own son and the blood of his own son that we might be at peace. He's been merciful to you and merciful to me. Jesus died in our place because God is filled with mercy and because he is a peacemaking merciful God, he calls his people to be merciful and calls his people to be peacemakers and he holds us to the standard, hear me, he holds us to the standard of treating others the way that he has treated us. That's what the last half of each verse means. The merciful will receive mercy. 
the peacemakers will be called children of God. Hear me, very important. It doesn't mean that these are conditions for being loved by God. It doesn't mean that if I'm merciful or if I'm a peacemaker, then and only then will God love and forgive me. This sermon is about life in the kingdom. It assumes we already belong to God. It assumes we've already received mercy. It assumes that God has already made peace. So hear me, it is not a condition to being right with God, but it is a consequence of being made right with God. It is not a condition for receiving God's love, but it is a consequence and a mark of those who have received God's love that they are then deployed into the world to offer mercy and to create peace because it demonstrates the heart of God, who he's been to us. This is all summed up in the phrase in verse nine, which says they'll be called children of God. Spend some time talking about that. It carries the idea that when we are peacemakers, we are children acting like our father. The phrase carries the same idea as our modern idiom, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Are you familiar with that phrase? My daughter played soccer a few years ago. One of her teammates was the son of a really well-known professional athlete. And this kid was by far the greatest athlete on the field. He was just the best. He could score at will. He was more coordinated than everyone else. He was just a great little athlete. And one time he scored this ridiculous goal and one of the other dads standing next to me looked at me and said, man, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Meaning uh, he is like his dad. There are things in him that he got from his dad, gifts that he got from his dad, talents that he got from his dad, genetics he got from his dad. And when they come out of him, it reminds people of his dad. It shows as he, as he you know, performs as a great athlete, it shows everyone that he is his father's son. If my daughter makes a great play, it's like, oh, wow, where'd that come from, right? But <laughs> this kid, his dad is so well known for being an athlete that to see that in his son, you can't help but make the connection to his dad. That's what Jesus means here. When we live lives that seek to reconcile, when we are agents of peace in the world and we create peace, what is coming out of our lives are the very things that came from God and that remind people of God. It's like the person who uh, tries to move towards peace, the one fighting against chaos for unity. Oh, they must be one of God's children. Their father is really well known as a peacemaker and they look just like their father. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Let me try it another way. I have three kids and one of my deepest hopes for them, sincerely, one of my deepest hopes for them is that they would be best friends. I want them to have uh, strong, sincere, genuine friendships with one another. I don't want them to just love each other because they're siblings. I want them to like one another. And I know I can't control that, but I just have this vision and I'll think about it all the time. I just have this vision of their future together. Like where as they age, their friendship grows. And even when they're out of my house, they're part of each other's lives in really meaningful ways, right? Like I can just see them 10 years from now. I've got two daughters and, 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 and one son and he's the oldest. And I could just see maybe 10 years from now, one of my daughters, they get their heart broken in some way or their, or their heart is grieved over something. And maybe their first call is not to their dad. Maybe even their first call is to their big brother. And he leaves whatever he's doing to go and just be with them and, and to comfort them. And, and I just... Maybe one day they each find someone and they get married, although if my daughters want to live at home forever, that's okay too. But maybe they marry and they have kids and, and they orient their lives in such a way that their kids can grow up together, right? And I can just see them, this vision of them loving one another where they celebrate their life together and they mourn their losses together. I just want them to be lifelong friends. I can't control it, but I long for it. And as of right now, 
they fight all the time. They fight all the time. So it's going really well. But sometimes in their moment of fighting, I know it might sound silly, but, but this happens. Sometimes in their moment of fighting, I will try to hold up that vision that I have for them a bit. Right in the middle of their conflict, I'll try to hold up that. Look, listen, guys, you can be lifelong friends. You have a lot of years left together. You're going to be relationally connected together for the rest of your life, whether you want to be or not. And that relationship, if you fight for it, your relationship together can be wonderful. It can be full of love, and it can be life-giving, and it can honor God. And in holding out that vision, what I'm hoping is I'm hoping that dream I have for what their relationship looks like a decade from now, two decades from now, I'm hoping that it puts their current moment of conflict in perspective. I'm hoping that the weight of that dream will melt some of the conflict away and, and maybe even to long for that future in a way that changes how they view the present. And I'll hold that out for them, and they mostly just roll their eyes. But there are moments, few, but there have been moments when I have heard them repeat that dream to one another. There are moments when I've heard them kind of share that vision together where they'll talk about their future together, consider what their friendship could be. My, my, uh, my oldest two the other day talked about one day buying houses next door to one another so they can be neighbors. Asher, my son, uh, was inside and yesterday some kids from the neighborhood came over to play and there's some boys outside playing with his little sister, my daughter, and Asher says, uh, and, and they were playing rough. He could see that they were playing pretty rough with her. And Asher said, I better go out there. And I said, okay. He said, yeah, if they lay another hand on her, I'm going to have to step in. And I said, okay. And on his way out, he looks at me and he shrugs his shoulders and he said, I may even have to cuss at him. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not going to have to. I'm pretty sure you're not going to have to do that. <laughs> but he cares about her. He really does. And in those moments, I, I see that he, that he cares about her, right? And it's these small places where I see them buy into that vision that I've tried to hold up, those, those longings that I have, and even treat each other differently because of that. And in those moments, friends, they are not just my children because they have my blood. In those moments, they are my children because they share my heart. They share my, my dream that I have for them. They want the peace that I want. Christian, you belong to the peacemaking God. You are children of the God who makes peace and he made peace by the blood of his cross. He nailed the hostility. Jesus carried that in his body and he rose again declaring that peace is possible. And God, the creator of the universe, has a vision for the world. He has a dream for the world that is an eternity of peace and an eternity of calm. And God, as father to his children, has held up that vision for us in his word. He describes it like this, that there's a day when the lion lays down with the lamb. There's a day when humanity will beat their swords and spears into plows and pruning hooks. Weapons of war are, are simply rendered as tools of righteous work because peace rules. And there's no need for the sun because the glory of God lights up the world and there's no mourning or crying or controversy or crisis or pain. There's just peace and that's God's vision and he holds it up to us in his word and he's fighting for it through his gospel and there is no conflict that divides homes. There's no distance between husband and wife and parents and children. There's no more relational strife at all in that vision of peace. And there's no controversy that divides the people of God. There is simply every tribe and tongue and people and nation all united under the banner that we overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And God holds up that vision of that wonderful future that is coming. And when you, friend, even now, 
When we stand in the middle of conflict in our home or we stand in the middle of chaos in our world or we stand in the middle of division in the church and we hold up that future and we fight for that future in a way that puts the current moment in perspective, we remind people of our Father. We show the heart of God. The apple is close to the tree. We are called his children to not be pulled into the polarities, but to hang on to the vision that God made peace with us and he has peace for us. And I know things are really complicated, but I will not let the future of peace put this moment in perspective and I fight for peace. And you know what you look like when you do that? You look like God. You look like the peacemaking God. And it doesn't ignore conflict. It doesn't ignore the very real challenges that we face. It doesn't ignore the issues that maybe need to be addressed in your relationships. But what it does do when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what it has us do is before getting into any of that, it has us stop and ask a question. Am I, as I'm entering into difficult spaces, am I trying to represent God's heart or am I just trying to represent my interests? Am I entering into whatever it is as someone trying to create peace? Is my goal to hold up God's vision for a world free of chaos? And if not, the apple needs to move closer to the tree because we're failing to represent our peacemaking God. There's a very simple way to be a peacemaker. The reason we took these two Beatitudes hand in hand is because they go together and they're interconnected. Creating peace always requires offering mercy. According to the Bible, mercy comes from us in two directions. Mercy goes to two different kinds of people in our lives. We offer mercy to those who need us, and we offer mercy to those who have hurt us. We offer mercy to those who need us, and we offer mercy to those who have wronged us. Let's take the first one first. We offer mercy to those who need us. These are people in our lives who are in a mess, a mess that we didn't make, but we enter into that mess with love. The key feature of biblical justice The key feature of justice in the Bible is God's people meeting needs of those around them in a way that reveals the heart of God. Mercy in the Bible is the very heart of justice. It's one of the most common requests that Jesus gets from those in need. There are two blind men on the side of the road. Jesus walks by and they cry out and they ask Jesus for something, not healing. They say, Jesus, mercy. There's a woman whose daughter is sick and she sees Jesus and she cries out to Jesus for mercy. They don't ask for healing. They just simply ask that Jesus would enter into their mess with them and enter into their brokenness with them and trust that if he does, it will be for their good. And he's always eager to do it because Jesus is merciful. He's the most merciful person who's ever lived. And then he expects that his mercy is contagious to us, that his mercy comes out from us in the way that we love others. His most popular teaching on love is the story of the Good Samaritan. And that story ends and mercy is the punchline. The question is asked, who was a neighbor, Jesus asked, and the answer is the one who showed mercy. The story is about a man who showed mercy to someone very different from him, who had done nothing for him, but who needed him. And friends, any serious desire to follow Jesus will mean living lives where we offer mercy to those in need, especially those who are different from us. These acts of mercy are what carry the mission of God, and they always have. Can I be very candid? It doesn't matter if you say yes or no. Um, I, I just, I just, I think we've been duped. I think we've been seduced as, I think the church, evangelical church in our portion of the world has just been seduced in so many ways. 
Here's what I mean. We have this peacemaking, mercy offering power and there are needs all around us and there's a world in turmoil and there's people in need. There's a message of hope, a God who is good and true and beautiful and so many of us are just so distracted, so apathetic. And the seduction, I think, goes like this. It comes out as we know so much about public problems and we know so much about, we are so caught up in issues over which we have very little control. And then we care too little about problems that we can actually help solve. We are so unmoved by the needs around us that we can actually enter in with mercy. What a scheme. That is a scheme from an enemy who hates the people of God and hates the holy mission that we've been given. Seduce the church into being outraged and over-informed about what we really can't control while keeping them apathetic and underwhelmed about the needs right around us that we can actually meet. Christianity has never been a movement that primarily changes the world through platforms and politicians and public power. It has always changed the world one neighbor at a time. One act of mercy unseen in the world and celebrated in heaven. And entering into those messes that are not mine and making them mine. And it's costly. Learning the names and stories of your neighbors takes time. Knowing the kids around you growing up without a dad costs time and resources and emotion. Taking time to build friendships with people who look different than you and think different than you. Offering your resources to those in need. Doing the work of finding the best ways to help the poor. Opening up your home that is a place of hospitable grace. And it's costly and it's mostly unseen. And it is the way the kingdom of God takes ground in a chaotic world. It is. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who offer mercy to those in need. Mercy is also what we offer to those who have wronged us. And this is where we'll end this morning. It brings us back to where we began. If this sermon is Jesus walking room to room, and if what we've experienced, if we've been here, if we've, if, we've, if we've followed his words, if what we've experienced is he'll come to a room maybe where we keep our pain and come to a room maybe where he, we keep our pride. For many of us, there's a room he wants to talk about this morning, and it's the room where we keep our broken relationships. Uh, people who have wounded us, maybe it's a parent that we're estranged from, maybe it's a child we aren't on speaking terms with, maybe it's an ex-spouse, maybe it's a current spouse, maybe it's a work relationship that went bad, maybe someone who hurt me or wronged me or sinned against me, and maybe even in this moment as I'm walking through that description, the Lord just brings a name to mind. Maybe he even brings a face to mind. Maybe he even brings the last conversation you had with that person that went really poorly and you haven't spoken since. Jesus this morning wants to open that door and wants to send you into that room to offer mercy. I wanna tread lightly because this is a complicated thing to talk about. That's a complicated room if that room exists in your life. We talked last July about forgiveness in the book of Colossians and how it's only possible after repentance. The way we said it is forgiveness can only walk through the door that repentance opens. And I know for, for many in the room, you've been sinned against, you've been wounded deeply, and you hear me say you need to offer mercy, and it's just not clear what that looks like when the person on the other side of the door has a cold shoulder and a hard heart and has not opened the door of forgiveness through repentance. And I understand that that's a story in the room, and I'm so sorry that that's a story in the room. If that's you, I truly believe that mercy looks like talking to God about their unrepentance asking God to soften their heart and asking God to ready your heart so that it's ready to offer mercy. One of the marks of the merciful is that they desire to offer mercy even if it's not possible in the moment. But others in the room, and I think maybe this story is the more common, 
have been hurt and then simply held on to that hurt. There are relationships in our lives that have soured. We are bitter and have not even tried to offer mercy. And instead of dealing with brokenness or trying to walk the path of reconciliation, we have stuffed that into a room and have no plan of opening the door. Or maybe there's every day is filled with more and more conflict and one person is waiting for someone else to be the first one to offer mercy. And what if over that, friends? What if over that unforgiveness, what if over that bitterness, over things that are unresolved, what is that the very thing that Jesus claims mine over this morning? What if this is the very place he wants to send you to offer mercy? And if you consider the testament of all of Jesus' teachings about this subject, if I could put it strongly, my dear friend, according to Jesus, you don't get to be a recipient of mercy from God and then refuse to offer it to others. And maybe that's the problem for some of us. Maybe mercy is hard to give because it's something you aren't sure that you have. Remember, Jesus is for you. He loves you. He offers mercy to you. He does not start the conversation with you, asking you to go and offer mercy in relationships and spaces that might be very difficult. He starts the conversation by saying, whatever you have, I'll cover it. Whatever you've done, I'll forgive it. Whatever your needs are, I'm with you. I'm going to enter into the messiest places of your life, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will always and forever offer more mercy and more grace and more forgiveness and more compassion. We can trust him. He's kind to us, gentle with us. And as those who have experienced that kind of scandalous mercy from our perfect Savior, we have received mercy. And maybe that means he's asking you today, friend, to pick up the phone this afternoon and call someone to at least try to wade through relational wounds with mercy. Husband, maybe he's asking you to sit down with your wife, wife with your husband, and together to hold out that vision that God has for peace in a way that puts your current conflict in perspective. Is he, friend, sending you somewhere today to offer mercy because you've received it? Is he sending you somewhere today to be a peacemaker, to enter into the conflict, holding up that vision for God's perfect world that's coming to say, I don't have all of the answers, but I have been loved by a merciful God and I have peace with a peacemaking God. And so I'm going to see myself as trying to represent the heart of that kind of merciful peacemaking father. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you, God, that of all of the difficult things that you will ask of us, of all of the obedience that you command in our lives, of all of the calls that you will make, you always equip what you call, you always resource for what you demand. And so I pray, God, for the man or woman in the room that needs to be reminded this morning that you have showered their life with mercy, that you have filled the home of their heart with cleansing forgiveness that flowed from your death in our place. I pray that we would believe that even now. I think of my favorite Puritan writer, Richard Baxter, who prays and says, how many mercies have I tasted since I thought I had sinned away all mercies? That's my story, God that when I thought I disqualified myself over and again from more mercy from you and more mercy from you, there was always mercy waiting ahead where I thought you couldn't do it again. Thank you, God. 
And as people who have been the recipients of that kind of love from you, God, may we not neglect, may we take seriously, may we hold you to your word when you say that we are now equipped. We now, God, have in our hearts the resources to go and to be merciful people. I, I, I hope I treaded lightly, God. I hope I honored you in honoring some of the complexities of stories in the room that I don't know. And I just pray, Lord, as your spirit takes your word and appropriates it in our life and appropriates it in our heart that we could just trust you to guide us in wisdom. But I, I do know this, God. I do know that where there is in the room unresolved conflict where there is, Lord, unspoken offense and bitterness. You are calling your sons and daughters to emulate the heart of their very Father in offering mercy and kindness. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.